Hello and welcome to MIMS Learning's Clinical Update podcast, bringing you some highlights of the clinical education available for primary and secondary care professionals on our website, mimslearning.co.uk, and at our live events. I'm Rhianna Nashman, Deputy Editor of MIMS Learning, and I'm joined today by Medical Editors Dawn Powell and Sangeeta Krishnan. In this episode, Dawn and Sangeeta will be talking about depression, an unfortunately common condition which many GPs in particular will see a lot of in daily practice. By the end of this episode, we hope you'll have refreshed your knowledge of how different subtypes of depression may present and come away feeling more confident about managing your patients. Staying on the theme of mental health, we'll be hearing from paediatric neurologist, Dr. Tammy Hederley on Tourette syndrome and other tic disorders. And finally, we'll leave you with three key points on squamous cell carcinoma. So now over to you both, Dawn and Sangeeta. Thanks, Rhiannon. On MIMS Learning, we have a clinical review of depression by Dr. Mario Duru-Enna. The module covers diagnosis, types and management options. Of note, Dr. Duru-Enna focuses on major depression or what NICE calls more severe depression. For more information about less severe depression, we recommend taking a look at our module on the relevant NICE guidelines. Dr. G. Ruena writes that according to the DSM-5 criteria, depression can be diagnosed if five symptoms of depression, of a potential seven, have been present for at least two weeks. However, one of those symptoms must be depressed mood or loss of interest or pleasure. He adds that depression is a heterogeneous disorder because it has different subtypes. These include disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, persistent depressive disorder, and medicine-induced depressive disorder. While all subtypes are associated with dysphoria and anhedonia, they differ regarding symptomology, neuroendocrine, physiological and behavioural functioning. More broadly, Dr. G. Ruena looks at different categories of depression, including melancholic and atypical depression. Sangeeta, you've had a look at the module. Do you have any questions? Yeah, I wanted to know what the difference was between melancholic and atypical depression. Well, there are some key differences. For example, people with melancholic depression typically experience insomnia, whereas people with atypical depression typically experience hypersomnia. People with atypical depression are also more likely to be female, have comorbidities such as anxiety, and be more sensitive to perceived rejection. However, Many people with depression do not fully fit into either category. Studies indicate that 15 to 30% of people with major depression present with an atypical episode, while 25 to 30% present with a melancholic episode. Thanks for explaining that, Dawn. We know that the NICE guidance recommends non-pharmacological therapies for less severe depression and antidepressants for more severe depression. In this context, how effective are antidepressants? Studies do suggest that antidepressants are effective for treating acute episodes, either by improving symptoms or by eliminating them in the short term. In terms of the individual agents, the SSRIs, escitalopram and sertraline are associated with the best efficacy and tolerability. What about the effects of antidepressants in the long term? What's the rate of recurrence? The evidence for the long-term use of antidepressants is limited. For this reason, 
The recent news story that 2 million people in England have been taking antidepressants for five years or more has caused some concern. That issue aside, according to Dr. Ju Ruena, preventing recurrence can be difficult. About 60% of people who receive treatment for depression will experience a second episode within a five-year period, with an average of four episodes over a lifetime. That's interesting. I think that goes to show that depression is a complex condition, both to diagnose and to treat. Indeed. Thanks again for discussing this module with me. As a reminder, it is available on the MIMS Learning website, as is the module I mentioned on the NICE guidelines on depression. Thanks very much, Dawn and Sangeeta, for talking us through that module. If you're keen to read further around the topic, do take a look at the learning modules that Dawn's mentioned. Next, Dawn is speaking with Dr. Tammy Headley about Tourette syndrome. Thanks, Rhiannon. I'm here with Dr. Tammy Headley. She is a consultant paediatric neurologist at Evelina London, Guys and St. Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust. She will be talking to me today about Tourette syndrome. Welcome to the podcast, Tammy. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So Tourette syndrome involves vocal and motor tics. What is a tic? So a tic is a brief and sudden movement and sound that is considered involuntary in response to usually a feeling or an urge, a premonitory urge, which precedes the movement or sound. And these are typically normal movements and sounds that the body can make, like a blink or a throat clear, but they're happening in a time where they're not supposed to occur. So they pop out when they shouldn't. They can be distressing and uncomfortable. The underpinnings of them we think are in part genetic, although the causes are multifactorial. And they can be triggered by emotion. Some people think it's anxiety or stress, but it can also be very positive emotions like excitement and happiness. Okay, so just going back, you said they considered a voluntary, but you've done a module for MIMS learning about Tourette syndrome, and I think you used the word irresistible there. What's the difference between irresistible and involuntary? This is the interesting thing that's happening at the moment, is traditionally we always thought there were involuntary movements, but with more understanding about the basis of the premonitory urge, there's a feeling that there's a semi-voluntary need to kind of get out the movement or sound so it challenges the notion that it's completely involuntary although these things happen so quickly that the person will perceive it as involuntary with Tourette syndrome although you can be diagnosed as an adult when it's most commonly presents is in childhood it's not unusual for a child to have a tick so What's the difference between like a child going through a phase and them having something like a tic disorder or Tourette syndrome? So this is a really good question because it's a very common misconception that Tourette's is somehow this severe end of the spectrum and is somehow a really concerning, difficult thing. When actually the definition of Tourette syndrome is very simple. It really is used to describe people who've had either at least a few motor tics with at least one sound going on for more than 12 months. 
and starting in childhood. So actually people write to me quite often and refer children saying this child's had tics for a few years, but they're very mild. I've told the parents I don't think this is Tourette syndrome. And strictly speaking, this isn't accurate because we don't use how severe the tick is or how bothersome or how intrusive it's. The definition of Tourette is based on time. I think in your module on Tourette syndrome, you talk about functional tick. So what's the difference between a Tourette's tick and a functional tick? Within the COVID period, we got many, many more referrals of Tourette-like presentations, which didn't fit with our typical understanding of what Tourette's is. Tourette's very commonly starts in boys, usually four to five boys to every one girl. And about 97% of our presenting young people were girls. So that's very astonishing. The other thing that was very different was the age. So Tourette's tends to start around the ages of four to five years, peaking around 10 to 12. And some of these teenage girls that were presenting over the last few years were 14, 15 so much later, on a background of not usually having ticks, there was a pattern of some of the people, not all, but some of the people presented with a very clear characteristic pattern of ticks that were very similar to some of the social influencers that were presenting their Tourette's on TikTok. Now, there is a phenomenon in Tourette's known as suggestibility, and suggestibility is a part of the brain kind of mimicry circuit and mirror neurons. We don't really understand fully what it is, but it's a bit like a yawn. So if someone in a meeting yawns, other people might yawn, it goes viral. And suggestibility in ticks is a little bit like that. So we think that somehow in lockdown, maybe a lot of the young people were watching a lot of social influencers and those that may have had vulnerabilities already to having tics or those that had other problems neurodiversity difficulties or some differences for example some young people had autism spectrum they seem to be vulnerable for their brains to then present with these movements and they got labeled by many people as having Tourette's but the presentation is very different to Tourette's and in the small group of people they had both some people have described this in the literature as TikTok ticks, and I don't think that's very helpful because I think it kind of undermines the severity of the condition. It's tempting to look and think, oh, they're just copying TikTok videos or these young people are mimicking something. But this is not really what we found. We found that some of the young people who present in this way have really quite significant mental health needs. And every young person that's presenting needs a thorough evaluation because some of the young people that we are seeing, it feels like this is the surface marker to what's going on underneath. And some of the children have experienced significant trauma. They may have depression. Some of the young people have got generalised anxiety. You were talking there about evaluation and I was just thinking most likely the child with ticks is going to be presenting in primary care. Can a GP diagnose Tourette's themselves or are they going to need to refer on? I think the important thing is to understand the different types of tick disorder. So you have transient ticks that may come and disappear after a few weeks or months. 
you have the ticks, the movements and the sounds that persist for more than 12 months. And that can be called Tourette syndrome. And the most important thing about Tourette syndrome is seeing the ticks as part of a wider spectrum and asking about ADHD, asking about mental health, asking about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, checking about learning as there are specific dyslexia, for example, because some of these things all overlap in the young person with Tourette's. And then I think there needs to be a good understanding that not everything that presents in teenagers that looks like tics is Tourette-related tics, but there is something called functional tics, which are very different and need managing in a different way. Playing devil's advocate, could a tic be a cry for attention, whether consciously or subconsciously? Well, I think when we look at functional symptoms and functional tics, for example, there is a difference in the attentional networks within the brain. So there's a link, for example, we think to probably children who have attentional differences. And sometimes what they perceive to be involuntary action to others looks almost voluntary. And it's a common mistake for people to say, oh, you're just making it up and you're just faking it and you're just looking for attention. This is a common mistake because the person feeling those symptoms and displaying them, probably their brain isn't interpreting it like this. Having said that, focus and attention to the symptoms often makes the symptoms a lot worse. So we usually recommend techniques like distraction, away from the movement, not giving the movements or sounds over-focused attention, because this can drive the suggestibility that I mentioned. So I think it's not helpful to say to the young person, you're looking for attention, you're making this up, because it's a real symptom to that person. But we can use shifting attention away from them to help the young person. So if the symptoms get rewarded in any way, they're likely to make the symptoms much worse. So if, for example, the young person dislikes school and they have lots of functional tics in school, if the young person is sent home, that can be rewarding to the brain. And this will probably make the symptoms get worse. Whereas if techniques can be used to keep the young person in school distracted from their symptoms, using distraction music, using timeout cards, maybe some fiddle toys, some Rubik's cubes, objects, doodle pads for, for drawing, then the brain can be encouraged to shift the attention away from those symptoms. Okay. So just to recap, Tourette's syndrome particularly presents in childhood. Is it something that they can grow out of? Well, I mean, I think it's quite interesting that the term grow out of it's uh, of a personality trait and a personality style. I think that the tics tend to become adjusted to with time. And in Tourette's, we usually counsel that three quarters of people affected by the Tourette's genetics and the Tourette's symptoms will have learned to live with them successfully and will learn to not be bothered by them throughout adulthood. So obviously there's a small group where the tics will be still intrusive and distressing and upsetting for adults with the condition. And it depends partly on what advice and support young people have when they're younger in order to kind of adjust 
who the tics and the co-occurring conditions like the ADHD in some or obsessive compulsive traits in others. So with the right support, I think the majority of people I've worked with with Tourette's have a really good quality of life as they enter adulthood. And Tourette's doesn't necessarily impair people's future or decisions about what they want to do with their life. There's always exceptions. And one of the problems with the way the media portrays Tourette's is often you see the young people where the Tourette's hasn't become a part of their life and they haven't adjusted in that way. Interestingly, you're talking about how media portrays Tourette's and the stereotype of Tourette's is someone who swears compulsively. But that's actually a misnomer, isn't it? Because most people with Tourette's don't swear. Well, they they do, but they, they're doing it voluntarily. They're not doing it involuntarily. So I think the general accepted incidence of swearing in Tourette's is about 5 to 10%. Finally, what can GPs do to support children with Tourette's and their parents? There's a lot that is out there about Tourette's online that's quite helpful. And we work very closely with Tourette Action, who are the charity supporting young people with tics, who can be very helpful. And actually, when I meet parents, the one thing they say is they like it when the GP or the primary care doctors have said to them, we think these are tics and been very clear and named them because it helps them access support. I think that the biggest upset from parents is when they've been dismissed by people saying, oh, don't worry about it, because they say that naturally, as being of being parents of young people with Tourette's, they may be themselves predisposed to higher levels of anxiety, and they will be worrying about their young person in front of them who's having lots of movements and sounds. What's a better thing to say is, Rather than don't worry, they'll just go away, signpost people to the literature and signpost people to the evidence around what percentage of young people grow out of their tics, what you can do to promote well-being of the person who's experiencing tics. For example, helping them to understand it is just a part of their personality. It's something that they can learn to suppress or if they want to, they can learn to you know accept. And there's lots of techniques that can be learned. And there are some treatments when for young people who have ongoing distressing symptoms. Some of those are behavioural techniques, psychological techniques, and then there's medication for those that need it or wish for it. So that the families can come away thinking, well, it might be Tourette's, but that's not necessarily a severe thing. It's just the definition Thank you for speaking to me today. For more information about Tourette's syndrome, we recommend reading the MIMS Learning Module on Tourette's syndrome and other tic disorders by Dr. Headley and her colleagues. They have also written a module on functional disorders, including functional tic disorders. And we will be putting links to the modules in the podcast descriptions. We're back now to round up this episode with our regular three key points segment. Today, we're covering cutaneous squamous cell carcinoma, or SCC. In 2020, the British Association of Dermatologists published guidelines for the management of cutaneous SCC, and our learning module by Dr. Minhee Kim has recently been updated to reflect how these guidelines may impact your practice. So, Sangeeta, what's our first point? 
So for our first point, it's well known that light-skinned people, especially redheads, are at greatest risk of developing cutaneous SCC. Indeed, this type of malignancy is rare in people of Asian, Black or Hispanic origin. However, mortality in the Black population is disproportionately high when compared with the incidence of SCC. In addition, areas of the body that are not typically exposed to the sun are more frequently involved in black patients, suggesting that sun exposure is a less important etiological factor in this group. Thanks, Sandita. So our first point is an important one for clinicians to be aware of, that although incidence of cutaneous SCC is lower among people with skin of colour, mortality is disproportionately high. If you want to read more on this, I would strongly recommend taking a look at the module we have on skin cancer in skin of colour. And our next point... Our second point relates to how SCC arises. So, unlike basal cell carcinomas, which normally appear de novo, cutaneous SCC can arise from existing lesions. For example, solar keratoses, Bowen's disease or scars. Indeed, the presence of solar keratoses remains the strongest predictor of cutaneous SCC in unaffected people. Around 5 to 20% of solar keratoses evolve into cutaneous SEC over a period of 15 to 25 years. Therefore, our second point is that some cases of SCC might be prevented by treating solar keratoses. Okay, thanks, Dawn. So our second point is that clinicians should be on the lookout for solar keratoses, which can appear as scaly papules or plaques. And bear in mind that treatment of these precancerous lesions could prevent some cases of cutaneous SCC. Our final point then is that the 2020 British Association of Dermatologists guidelines categorise cutaneous SCC into low, high and very high risk, depending on tumour factors, margin status and patient factors. Patients with cutaneous SCC tend to report an abnormal growth or non-healing ulcer on a sun-exposed area of skin, most frequently the lower lip, external ear, forehead and scalp. Clinicians should ask about the onset and behaviour of the lesion, for example, the presence of a preceding lesion, because this can help to differentiate a cutaneous SCC from another growth or indicate its aggressiveness. Any history of pain, numbness or facial weakness is also important because it might signify deep perineural invasion, which has a poor prognosis. So the three key points on SCC for you to take away today are Firstly, people with skin of colour experience a disproportionately high mortality rate relative to their incidence of cutaneous SCC. Secondly, cutaneous SCC can arise from existing lesions such as solar keratosis, so treating these may prevent some cases progressing to SCC. And finally, consider cutaneous SCC in terms of low, high and very high risk and ask about any pain, numbness or facial weakness as this may indicate poor prognosis. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of MIMS Learning's Clinical Update podcast. We hope you've taken away some valuable insights and look forward to you joining us next time.